here. Labor Day, okay? Labor Day. I want to talk to you about Labor Day for a minute. Do you know what year was first celebrated in the United States for Labor Day? Anybody want to take a shot? 1882. You were close. Very good. When is Labor Day celebrated in Canada and America? The first Sunday in September. That's right. Which country celebrates Labor Day on the 1st of May? Anybody want to take a shot? China. Which city in the United States of America was the first to celebrate Labor Day? Los Angeles. I'm going to give you some options. New York, Chicago, or Atlanta? Come on. Participate. New York. Whoever said it. Good. The first labor strike in the United States is believed to have occurred in which year? 1494, 1578... 1636 or 1776? 1636. All right. We're doing good in our American history this morning. Here we go. The Great May labor strikes in 1886 were all about the eight-hour workday, not having coffee, no bathroom breaks, or working Sundays. Okay. Anyway, you, you have your answer. It's a, it was over the eight-hour day. Which U.S. president signed the labor bill? Grover Cleveland, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, or William Taft? Grover Cleveland. All right, the eight-hour day came into effect in which year? 1925, 1935, 45, or 75? 1935. What national food chain opened its door on the first day of Labor Day? McDonald's, IHOP, Taco Bell, or Waffle House? Waffle House, somebody said it. <laughs> what national food chain, uh, let's see, forget that one. Labor Day marks the end of what type of season? Hot dog season, hamburger season, shopping season, or football season? Y'all are stumped on this one. Somebody said it. Who said it? Hot dog season. Okay. What was the name of the secret organization which provided the basis of American Federation of Labor? The Illuminati, the Order of Skull and Bones, or the Knights of Labor? Okay, good guess. All right. Which state was the first to celebrate Labor Day? Michigan, Florida, Nevada, or Oregon? Oregon. Very good. What was the average work day before the Labor Day Act was passed? 12 hours, 11 hours, 9 hours, or 10 hours? 12 hours, and that's usually what caused all the uproar. Okay, enough Labor Day American history. Y'all did good, passed your test, and we're all doing well. All right, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been betrayed? In other words, well, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I'm... I'm asking this, and you raise it in your heart, okay? In other words, you enter into a relationship with someone, you think everything's loyal, everything's wonderful, and all of a sudden, it turns and something happens. Usually, sometimes this happens a lot in leadership. It also happens in life and wherever we live. How do we deal with that? What do you do with it? I'm going to talk to you. I read a book this summer on loyalty and disloyalty. And so I'm going to paint a couple of pictures of disloyalty, a couple of loyalty, using some people in Scripture and talk to us about how God wants us to get over that. Because here's the reason. 
you know, one of the things that a pastor thinks about are the needs of people. One of the, one of the issues that holds people in bondage is the distrust or the dislike of others or having some kind of resentment in their heart that they can never get over. And what it does is it wraps chains around your soul that you can never forgive someone, you can never get past that, and it, it stunts your spiritual growth. So what we want to do at the end of this, and I'm going to have a whole message on how you deal with when you've been done wrong, I'm going to help you break those chains, okay? So that's where we're headed, but we have to kind of pave the way to get there. Three types of loyalty. Uh, so there's lo genuine loyalty, deformed loyalty, and disloyalty. So let me define these real quick. Loyalty can be described or defined as allegiance to a person, a cause, an institution. Here's the key, through good and bad times. Greg and Sharon are going to take care of her parents. Her parents are aging. Those of us who have had parents that have declined and went downhill, that is not always fun. Late hours, late nights, if their mind is affected at all, saying things that they really don't mean to say, hurtful things sometimes, and you have to learn how to discern what is, uh, what is coherent and what's not. But you as a person are loyal to them, and you're committed to them, and you're going to stick with them, key word here, in the good times and the bad. I've been at Trinity going on 13 years. Can some of you all believe that? You've had to put up with me that long. Every, ever since I've been here, there is a man in our congregation whose wife had rapid dementia coming on when I first came, and he has cared for her for ever since. Loyalty in good times and bad. That's what it means. Zig Ziglar says the foundation stones for balanced success in life are, get this, honesty, character, integrity, faith, love, and he also includes loyalty, a building block for your character. Healthy loyalty includes this. By the way, loyalty to someone doesn't mean blindness. It doesn't mean you never confront them. It doesn't mean that you never have to say something to help correct them. That, that is false loyalty. But healthy loyalty is when you can approach someone about an issue or a problem and speak truth into their life because you love them and you want what's best for them. Deformed loyalty looks something like this. You're not allowed to question decisions or examine actions of someone or an organization. Uh, they refuse input or critique, expect total compliance without reservation, or claim that they are the only one teaching or doing what's right. They're on an island all of their own, okay? And they expect you to blindly follow them. This is called deformed loyalty. And if you follow someone or a movement like that, you are practicing deformed loyalty. So be careful with that one. So as we think about disloyalty, <clears throat> and we're going to go to a passage in Scripture this morning, that if you're on church center, you've already read and you know as well as I do this morning, right? And it's what? Oh, boy, some of y'all did do that. God bless you. Okay. But what is disloyalty? I'm just rapid-firing through here, okay? Classic signs of disloyalty goes kind of like this. The person or organization that you're dealing with will make the issue all about them. 
They will surround you with negativity if you question anything. They're usually backbiters. They say hurtful things. Key word here, are you ready for this? Disloyal people, and by the way, you should put an asterisk beside this, almost never apologize. Have you ever met someone who when they do wrong, they'll say, say everything except, I am sorry I was wrong. They'll beat around Robin's barn and bush and you know, talk about mistakes and so forth. They'll never get to the issue, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Okay. Number six, they're only around when they need you. They do not tell the truth. They do not respect boundaries when you put them up. They sometimes use the where we're family or we're friends as an excuse to kind of hurt you and continue to do that. And they're not dependable. Now you say, well, I want that list of ten. Well, you'll have to go back and watch the sermon and screen capture it, okay? But there they are, and, and they're available to you. You can always go back and get them. So these are like the classic signs of disloyalty. But here's what I want you to understand. At the heart of disloyalty is this one issue. It's the desire underneath to harm or hurt someone. You're going to get them, and sometimes you do it with a smile on your face. That's the most dangerous type person to be around. And this morning, we're going to learn about a lady. Her name is Miriam. She is the sister of Aaron and Moses. So Numbers chapter 12, if you will, this morning. Let me give you a little background on what's happened. God, Brian just preached on Joseph, so God has sent the nation of Israel down into Egypt and they have spent how many years there? 400. And they are in slavery. And while they're in slavery, slavery, they begin to groan. God hears them. He raises up Moses. Moses is sent to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh is told to turn the people loose and he doesn't do it. So now there's a contest between God and Pharaoh. And God gives the ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt until Pharaoh finally throws his hands up and says, let them go. The nation of Israel goes out of Egypt after being slaves, by the way. You should go back and read the story. They were screaming, they're all going to die. You know, they have no way to make these bricks. God leads them to the Red Sea. He stretches out his hand. He parts the water of the Red Sea. He puts the angel of the Lord in front of them, a pillar of cloud and fire behind, and he leads them through the water. The Egyptian army goes in, and God closes the Red Sea and takes care of the whole problem. And now we have Egypt going through the land. Everything's fine until what? They run into a little bit of discomfort. Now, by the way, I'm speaking to myself here, okay? I'm speaking to myself. You really find out what your character is when you get uncomfortable let it get hot let you get hungry let things not go your way I I just I share this with you out of love because I do this to myself all the time that's why I scare me do you you scare yourself When, when we don't get our way as people wow do we get ill and the the nation of Israel got hungry, and they got thirsty, and guess what they started to do? They started to complain. I mean, they started grumbling. I wish we'd go back to Egypt. It was so nice there. I mean, 
when the reader reads that in the story, you're supposed to go, are you serious? I mean, this is humanity, folks. This is, this is who we are. We grumble and complain, but we don't get our way. And, and you know what is so interesting about it? Come up close. God can't stand it. Because at the heart of it, it's ungratefulness. And so what does he do? Let's pick up the story here. Uh, here, I'll tell you what he did. I have to go back and capture it. So all these people start complaining, and now there's all these problems, and Moses is trying to handle them all himself. And so the people are saying, there's only one Moses, and we need more people. So God comes down, and there's 70 people, and God takes some of the Spirit on Moses, and he puts it on these 70 leaders, and he says, you all help them be judges and police officers and everybody else and help solve their problems in the community here. Well, all of a sudden... There's this jealousy that comes up because Miriam and Aaron apparently didn't get what they wanted, but she was the ringleader. Now watch what happens. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. It's interesting because the passage says here, because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now some people wonder what the issue here is. I'll come back to that. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now, can you imagine this scene? This is how it worked. The nation of Israel was in an encampment, and God had this, not the tabernacle now, this the tent of meeting. Some people say it's a tabernacle. Some people say it was a separate booth. That's another issue we're not going to get into here. But God had a special place. He met with Moses. And there was this underlying jealousy in their hearts that God was showing favoritism to Moses and not them. And as a result of that, they became furious. And now what do they begin to do? They start rallying the troops together to outnumber and to condemn poor old Moses. And Moses apparently was this meek, humble guy, and he didn't say a whole lot. He didn't have to have the power. He didn't have to wield the sword. He was willing just to let things go, and all of a sudden he's about to be trampled on. Y'all got the picture here? When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. Y'all know what leprosy is like. It's like a flesh-eating disease. And Aaron turned toward Mary, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, don't punish us because we've done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as a dead one whose flesh is half eaten. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her. Now notice, who's crying? 
Moses. Who was complaining? Miriam. Who judged? God. So now you have Moses complaining or praying that God will forgive Miriam. Now keep that in mind. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, she should, not be, uh, should she not be shamed seven days? Now this was a custom in the ancient world. I know this offends people, but this was a mark of, you know, a slap in the face. Back in this day, if they spit in your face, there was a problem here and you would be isolated because you were in trouble. So the analogy here is she has leprosy, right? So she should be isolated. If someone becomes unclean because of a particular reason, they're isolated for at least seven days. So, so don't you think that's fair? I mean, what do, you, what do you think I should do is kind of what God's response is. Let her be shut outside the camp seven days and after that she may be brought in again. Now notice what has this disloyalty and grumbling brought about. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again, held up the whole congregation. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now when we think about a story like this, you see some steps here that start in the direction of disloyalty. Now see if you can pick these up in the passage. This is kind of what what was gathered from this. The first step toward disloyalty is when you actually begin verbalizing your discontent. Now, every one of us, and don't say you don't because you lie to yourself and anybody else that you say, when we become, when we encounter something we don't like, the first thing we start doing is in our heart we start rationalizing ourselves, And we start saying, well, here's why I don't like that. And, you know, we're talking to ourselves now. One, two, three, four. And, and that's okay because the, the bottom line is really nobody knows what you're thinking. What's, what are you thinking about? You look troubled. Oh, nothing. You know, you've got it here. The first step toward disloyalty is when we start verbalizing what we're thinking. Now, some of us have this, this weakness where we verbalize what we think. And we, we talk about, this is just a prayer, prayer request, you know, pray for me here, I'm, I'm struggling with this. And, and they start verbalizing. And this is what basically started happening. The second thing is that you start betraying close relationships. Here's a brother and a sister and another brother. And what happens? There's this inner conflict and one sibling pulls the other one to their side and they start conspiring against the one and now you have this great big family mess and this issue between these and it's going to cause this great breach between what should be the closest relationship ever and then you have the destruction of unity and what was that that was the the public acknowledging the questioning the accusing and now you have this split. And then you have this misdirected accusation. Now, here's my question, and I'm, I'm just throwing this out to you. We know that they were jealous. We don't know why. The text says that they were jealous because Moses had married a Cushite woman. Now, Cushites had much darker skin than Israelis. They, were, they, were more, uh, they had a darker pigment. 
So some people say, well, maybe this was racism. I don't know what the answer to this is, but the underlying issue is the issue is really the heart. And it was Miriam's heart which led to the problem, and then she spread it to Aaron, and then it spreads to the whole Israelite community. And then there's this undermining of authority. She knows who Moses is. She knows God meets with him face to face. And she knows that Moses is the man who God has chosen to lead. But what does she do? Has God only spoke to Moses? I mean, you know, that's like dangerous. Dangerous. Now, please hear me for a minute. Never apply this passage to a pastor. Please. God has never called me, and I'm going to go ahead and go on the record here, or no other pastor to the tent of meeting. And God has never met them face to face and told them exactly what he wanted like inspired word. There is no pastor, no pastor who is above questioning. Okay? So just get that out there. We're not talking about uh, the anointed of the Lord that can never be questioned. And by the way, don't ever quote that passage. Touch not the Lord's anointed. That was talking about the king of Israel. So I, I just throw that out so you don't think I'm trying to say that this, this applies to the pastor and nobody can ever question. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying here is, is that the nation of Israel was led by Moses, who was like the governor, the president, the judge, and the police. He had a multifaceted role here. And so they knew God had directed this man to do exactly what he told them to do, and they were challenging Moses, which was in no doubt, Challenging God. God, we don't like what you're doing because you've only said, and God, we're going to get our way. Now, by the way, that's a dangerous place to be in. Did you know that? Dangerous. And then finally, they began recruiting others. Now, as we think about this passage and we think about our own life, how do we handle this? What do we learn about disloyalty? Can we point this out really quick? First of all, number one, disloyalty, intentionally undermining another person for the purpose of harm is sin. I mean, just call it what it is, right? It's sin. Look in verse 11 of chapter 12. Notice what is said. Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and we have sinned. So the first thing we do if we're going to be honest and deal with the issue is call it what it is, right? We can never get in fellowship or be right with God and others if we deny truth. We have to call it what it is. Sin is sin. Number two, the sin of disloyalty is not private. It impacts many. If you look down in verse 14 and 15, this passage goes on to say, But the Lord said to Moses, he, he talks about this spit in the face, shut out seven days. So Miriam, I'm in verse 15, was shut outside the camp seven days. Notice carefully here. And the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. What happens when disloyalty and overthrow and all these things take place? The people are stuck. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. And in this case, over one 
to disloyal people. Everybody pays the price. You see this in corporations. You see this. You even see this in churches, by the way. You see this in family relationships. You see this all over the place. When disloyalty happens, when one person sets out to intentionally harm someone, I mean, it just water jam, water logs, jams everything. And everybody has to pay for it. It's not private. It impacts many. And then it just, it's just a waste of time and energy. So this is exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. Now, when we think about this historically, and we know that God says all things in the Old Testament were written for our understanding so that we can learn from this and learn how to live, how do we deal with this? Well, how do we handle disloyalty? Maybe the best passage in the New Testament to address this is Romans chapter 12. And I'm, I've got it on the screen here in just a second. I'm going to give you the first point here. How should we handle disloyalty? And by the way, this is multi-pronged here. I'm only addressing like one prong. But the first, the first concept or the first idea that we really should have in our heart is first of all, strive to live peacefully with all people. And the key word here is, if possible, if possible. Notice what Paul says. Live in harmony with one another. Now let this soak in. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Notice this next phrase. But give thought. You know, you, if you want to think about something, here's what you should think about between you, yourself, and I. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Slow down. Pause. Make this your devotions, your quiet time with God before you tell a soul. You're just talking to God because... Nobody can eavesdrop on your conversation, read your text or email. You're, it's just you and God. And you're giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do you all pray like this? Father, I don't know what in the world I should do. I'm in a mess. I don't know whether I should do this or do that. But what I do want to do is Romans 12, 17. I don't want to repay evil for evil and play that game. But I'm given thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And especially you. So I'm asking for wisdom on high to help me know which step to take to do the right thing, to bring honor to you, and to be thought of well among all. In other words, when somebody sees what I have done, they're going to bring glory to you and say that I had to come from God. It's good when you learn to pray like that. <clears throat> By the way, God answers those prayers too. Oftentimes, though, we don't slow down long enough to do that, do we? I'm guilty too. I'm, I'm right there with you. Paul says, if possible, <clears throat> so far as it depends on you, on, so far as it depends on you, you can't control the other person. As far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And again, now he's going to repeat, no evil for evil, but watch how he words it. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Can I stop there?
I mean, if I had to give a thesis to a sermon, what do you do when you're betrayed? Never avenge yourself. That doesn't mean don't speak the truth. That doesn't mean don't, don't share what the issue is. <clears throat> but event, uh, to avenge is to try to get revenge. I'll tell you what, you stab me, you wait till you see what I do to you. I'm going to get you so good you're going to wish you'd never touched me. You ever met somebody like that, by the way? <clears throat> you ever worked for somebody like that? Mm. <clears throat> I have. I have. I've worked for some very spiteful, vengeful, disloyal people. And they wore guns. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, notice, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the bottom line here is, when someone goes to hurt you as best as you can, Live peaceably with them. Don't try to get them back. Let God fight. Let him fight. To the contrary, Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, the picture here, this is debated. Does this mean you're, you're making hell hotter for him? Can I, can I say to you, Paul in Romans 12 is talking to other believers. He's talking about how Christians treat each other. Back in the ancient culture, when somebody wanted to start a fire, they didn't just go to Walmart and buy a lighter. They didn't just go get them a book of matches. You know what they had to do? They had to start rubbing stones together. Y'all ever tried that? You ever tried to start a fire with flint rock? It's hard. And some people believe what this actually means is when someone wanted to start a fire, the gracious neighborly thing to do would be go over and give them a bucket and let them get some of those already burning coals and carry it to their house. And they've already got a fire going. And Paul is perhaps saying this. I don't know that. I'm just telling you that's how it worked. Maybe Paul's saying this. Don't repay them evil for evil, but if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Because in so doing, you know what you're doing? You're doing a gracious deed to them. How are they going to, how are they going to reject that? Now notice what he says. By the way, they used to carry it on their head between this pad. Now you, you don't have to take that. You can say it's hellfire or whatever you want. But long story short, it's be gracious and do what's right. And then Paul summarizes by saying, Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's pattern for dealing with disloyalty. When, when you are done disloyal, this is how we are to respond. Now, in the next few messages, I'm going to be talking about our heart. When this happens to us, what do we do? Okay, how do you actually get down in these thoughts and mind this out and make it happen? So how do we handle disloyalty? First of all, strive to live peaceably if possible. Number two, when betrayed... Ask for God's mercy on those who were disloyal. The first thing God did for Miriam when she got leprosy was what? He prayed for her. 
Can you believe that? I mean, he prayed for her. How convicting. Most of the time we pray against, don't we? He prayed for her. And then finally, and this is the hardest thing, isn't it? Let God take care of the problem. Let him. Vengeance is mine. I might repay. Is that what God says? Mm. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, it takes faith to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place on a cross to pay for your sin and to offer you the gift of eternal life. It takes faith to believe that. And it's not really about the amount of faith you have, but it's about the object that accomplished it for you. Do you know it also takes faith to trust God to right your wrongs? It takes faith because God usually, are you ready? Usually never does this on our timetable. And somehow or another in our humanity, we think that if we don't see God bring justice, God never will. That is not the God of the Bible. Oftentimes, the God of the Bible waits until your life is over before he ever addresses the issue, but he never forgets it. And what he tells his children is, remember your father who loves you and cares for you, knows the hairs on your head or the hairs that were on your head. He loves you and he will avenge you. Maybe not in your time, but in his time. And for those who know scripture, you know that God has a place set up in the future after our life is over where believers will stand before a place called the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to me, folks. It's not not just a reward table. It is a table where rights will be made wrong. Uh, That was backward. Wrongs (laughs) will be made right. See, you've got to watch what I say. (laughs) Wrongs will be made right. And faithfulness will be rewarded in trusting God with this. He will do it. There's a place where unsaved people who have wronged and done wrong, they will be judged according to their works. They will have to answer for for things that they have done. Nobody's getting by with one thing. This is what you have to remember in the Christian life. And this truth allows us to think about how to do something good and then in turn trust God to be faithful to what He says. Okay? I hope that helps you. As a pastor, and I want to share this with you, I have seen people come, and I'm not a counselor, by the way. I know Scripture. I try to give people biblical advice. But I, I am not a counselor, so I'll say that up front. But I have had people come in and talk to me about having this wrong done against them. And as you begin to talk to them, you begin to get them to expose their heart, find out what the, what the root issue really is, and then you get to the point about what they're doing with that in their life, what you discover is this. Their whole life is identified and defined by that one action that is done against them. And in turn, it impacts every relationship they have. They can't trust this person. They won't do this. They won't do... I mean, it just totally puts them in bondage. And what God wants His children to do is to to be free. To be free from that. Entrust that to Him 
And let's get on with our life in Romans 16 and live peaceably if we can. Forgive, don't repay evil, and then entrust vengeance to God. And if we do that, we can walk in fellowship. We can strive to help other people. We can grow in our Christian life. We can serve Jesus. We can bring honor to God the Father and in the face of other people. And may God mold that Christian character in us. And you know what? May it always be said of Christians. I'm, I'm talking. Zach sang this morning, we will be a church ready for you. I'm thinking about Trinity. I can't handle every other church. We can't hardly handle our own. But let me say this. As Trinity Community Church, let us be a group of people who are committed to loyalty toward God and one another. Always have the best for your neighbor, your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Always have that in your heart and mind. Because when you do that, it brings unity that cannot be broken. And it brings a strong, healthy church. And you know what? When we come together for the Lord's table like we're doing right now, this is basically what Jesus prayed. And so our, our men are going to go back to the back and they're going to distribute the elements because we're going to observe the Lord's table here. And I'm going to give you this little analogy while they're handing out the bread and the cup. Do you remember what happened the night in which Jesus instituted this last Lord's Supper with his disciples? What did he do? What happened to him? There's a guy by the name of Judas. Any of y'all's kids named Judas? Isn't this interesting? I mean, not many people are named Judas. And there's a reason. Because Judas betrayed Jesus. You all can go ahead and start handing them out, guys. There's a wafer on the bottom and juice on the top. As you, as you begin to think about that, after Jesus was betrayed, what did he do? Did he just quit? Did he say, well, one person did me wrong and I'm not going to be faithful to anybody? No, he didn't. He became passionately devoted to his disciples. And then he prayed this magnificent prayer in John chapter 17. And I'm going to read some of this to you. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have made your name known to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And you have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. You want to know why you should read your Bible? Right there it is. I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world 
but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now listen to this part. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And then he instituted this, the giving of his body and his life. You know why he gave his life? Yes, he gave it to pay for our sin. Yes, he gave it to help our justification before the Father. But he also did this act so that we might be one. Unity. And we display that when we show his character and forgiveness, and love, compassion with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ.